This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Nawabdin, Electrician, by Daniel Mouinuddin, which was published in The New Yorker in August of 2007. Unfortunately or fortunately, Nawab had married early in life, a sweet woman of unsurpassed fertility, who he adored, and she proceeded to bear him children spaced, if not less than nine months apart, then not that much more. The story was chosen by Marissa Silver, who's the author of two story collections and four novels, including Mary Coyne and Little Nothing. Hi, Marissa. Hi, Deborah. So when we talked, you, you were on the podcast once before reading a story by Peter Taylor, and when we talked about doing it this time, this story, Nawab Dinelli Christian, was one of the first things that came to mind. Why was that? Um, I just remember reading this in The New Yorker, and at the time, I think we had not been aware of this man as a writer. I just was knocked out by it. And I think what I love about this story and all of his stories is the uh, deceptive simplicity of the telling, which belies an incredible complexity underneath it. Um, And it's the kind of story that I really admire. And uh, I think he does it so beautifully. So you read it first, just when it came out in the magazine? Yeah. And then I got the collection and read the collection in other rooms, other wonders. Right. It's a stunning collection. It gets both the political and the personal in such beautiful balance so that you understand both the the kind of structural situation of this landowner and his minions mm-hmm. um, in, in Pakistan at that time. And you also dig deeply into these exquisitely complicated interiorities. There's nothing simple about any of the characters that he writes about. Yeah. This was the second story he published, as far as I know. Doesn't feel like an early career piece. <laughs> um, no, this, I don't know what he was doing before this. I think he a, has a farm and I think, but he's, um, he, he, he appeared fully fledged in, in a really astonishing way. I mean, it really, it was as good as any Chekhov story, any, you know, mm-hmm. it, it just is such a complete kind of performance of, of what his intentions are and, and the world that he describes. Um, and just incredibly diverting stories that begin and you think you understand what the nature of the character is going to be. And then you are utterly surprised by what's truly going on. And, and every single one of the stories in the book, they take you by surprise, but mm-hmm. in ways which don't feel untoward. They, they feel like, yes, this is the, the, the strange complexity of human nature where people are at odds with themselves all the time. Right. And surprise us. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll talk some more after the story. Now here's Marissa Silver reading Nawabdin, Electrician, by Daniel Muinadin. Nawabdin, Electrician He flourished on a signature ability, a technique for cheating the electric company by slowing down the revolutions of its meters, so cunningly performed that his customers could specify to the hundred-rupee note the desired monthly savings. In this Pakistani desert, behind Multan, where the tube wells pumped from the aquifer day and night, Nawab's discovery eclipsed the philosopher's stone. Some thought he used magnets. Others said heavy oil or porcelain chips or a substance he found in beehives. Skeptics reported that he had a deal with the meter men. In any case, this trick guaranteed Nawab's employment both off and on the farm of his patron, K.K. Haruni. The farm lay strung along a narrow and pitted farm-to-market road, built in the 1970s, when Haruni still had influence in the Islamabad bureaucracy. 
buff or saline white desert dragged out between fields of sugarcane and cotton, mango orchards and clover and wheat, soaked daily by the tube wells that Nawabdin electrician tended. Beginning the rounds of Nurpur Haruni on his itinerant mornings, summoned to a broken pump, Nawab and his bicycle bumped along, decorative plastic flowers swaying on wires sprouting from the frame. His tools, notably a three-pound ball-peen hammer, clanked in a greasy leather bag suspended from the handlebars. The farmhands and the manager waited in the cool of the banyans, planted years earlier to shade each of the tube wells. No tea, no tea, Nawab insisted, waving away the steaming cup. Hammer dangling from his hand like a savage's axe, Nawab entered the oily room housing the pump and its electric motor. Silence. The men crowded the doorways till he shouted that he must have light. He approached the offending object warily, but with his temper rising, circled it, pushed it about a bit, began to take liberties with it, settled in with it, called for a cup of tea next to it, and finally began dissembling it. With his long, blunt screwdriver, he cracked the shields hiding the machine's penetralia, a screw popping loose and flying into the shadows. He took the ball peen and delivered a crafty blow. The intervention failed. Pondering the situation, he ordered one of the farm workers to find a really thick piece of leather and to collect sticky mango sap from a nearby tree. So it went, all morning and on into the afternoon. Nawab trying one thing and then another, heating the pipes, cooling them, joining wires together, circumventing switches and fuses. And yet, somehow, in fulfillment of the local genius for crude improvisation, the pumps continued to run. Unfortunately or fortunately, Nawab had married early in life, a sweet woman of unsurpassed fertility, who he adored, and she proceeded to bear him children spaced, if not less than nine months apart, then not that much more. And all daughters, one after another after another, until finally the looked-for son arrived, leaving Nawab with a complete set of twelve girls ranging from toddler to age eleven and one odd piece. If he had been governor of the Punjab, their dowries would have beggared him. For an electrician and mechanic, no matter how light-fingered, there seemed no question of marrying them all off. No moneylender in his right mind would, at any rate of interest, advance a sufficient sum to buy the necessary items for each daughter. Beds, a dresser, trunks, electric fans, dishes, six suits of clothes for the groom, six for the bride, perhaps a television, and on and on and on. Another man might have thrown up his hands, but not Nawabdin. The daughters acted as a spur to his genius, and he looked with satisfaction in the mirror each morning at the face of a warrior going out to do battle. Nawab, of course, knew that he must proliferate his sources of revenue. The salary he received from K.K. Haruni for tending the tube wells would not even begin to suffice. He set up a one-room flour mill, run off a condemned electric motor, condemned by him. He tried his hand at fish farming in a pond at the edge of one of his master's fields. He bought broken radios, fixed them, and resold them. He did not demur even when asked to fix watches, although that enterprise did spectacularly badly and earned him more kicks than kudos, for no watch he took apart ever kept time again. K.K. Haruni lived mostly in Lahore and rarely visited his farms. Whenever the old man did visit, Nawab would place himself night and day at the door leading from the servant's sitting area into the walled grove of ancient banyan trees where the old farmhouse stood. Grizzled, his peculiar aviator glasses bent and smudged, Nawab tended the household machinery, the air conditioners, water heaters, refrigerators, and pumps, like an engineer tending the boilers on a foundering steamer in the Atlantic gale. 
By his superhuman efforts, he almost managed to maintain K.K. Haruni in the same mechanical cocoon, cooled and bathed and lighted and fed, that the landowner enjoyed in Lahore. Haruni, of course, became familiar with this ubiquitous man, who not only accompanied him on his tours of inspection, but could be found morning and night standing on the master bed, rewiring the light fixture or poking at the water heater in the bathroom. Finally, one evening at tea time, gauging the psychological moment, Nawab asked if he might say a word. The landowner, who was cheerfully filing his nails in front of a crackling rosewood fire, told him to go ahead. Sir, as you know, your lands stretch from here to the Indus, and on these lands are fully seventeen tube wells, and to tend these seventeen tube wells there is but one man, me, your servant. In your service I have earned these gray hairs. Here he bowed his head to show the gray. And now I cannot fulfill my duties as I should. Enough, sir, enough. I beg you, forgive me my weakness. Better a darkened house and proud hunger within than disgrace in the light of day. Release me, I ask you, I beg you. The old man, well accustomed to these sorts of speeches, though not usually this florid, filed away at his nails and waited for the breeze to stop. What's the matter, Nawabdin? Matter, sir? Oh, what could be the matter in your service? I've eaten your salt for all my years. But, sir, on the bicycle now, with my old legs and with the many injuries I've received when heavy machinery fell on me, I cannot any longer bicycle about like a bridegroom from farm to farm, as I could when I first had the good fortune to enter your service. I beg you, sir, let me go. And what is the solution, Haruni asked, seeing that they had come to the crux. He didn't particularly care one way or the other, except that it touched on his comfort, a matter of great interest to him. The crops that year had been good. Haruni felt expansive in front of the fire, and so, much to the disgust of the farm managers, Nawab received a brand new motorcycle, a Honda 70. He even managed to extract an allowance for gasoline. The motorcycle increased his status, giving him weight so that the people began calling him uncle and asking his opinion on world affairs about which he knew absolutely nothing. He could now range farther, doing much wider business. Best of all, now he could spend every night with his wife, who early in the marriage had begged to live not in Nawab's quarters in the village, but with her family in Feroza, near the only girls' school in the area. A long straight road ran from the canal headworks near Feroza all the way to the Indus, through the heart of the K.K. Haruni lands. The road ran on the bed of an old highway built when these lands lay within a princely state. Some hundred and fifty years ago, one of the princes had ridden that way, going to a wedding or a funeral in this remote district, felt hot, and ordered the rosewood trees be planted to shade the passerby. Within a few hours, he forgot that he had given the order, and in a few dozen years, he in turn was forgotten, but these trees still stood, enormous now, some of them dead and looming without bark, white and leafless. Nawab would fly down this road on his new machine with bags and streamers hanging from every knob and brace so that the bike, when he hit a bump, seemed to be flapping numerous small vestigial wings, and with his grinning face as he rolled up to whichever tube well needed servicing, with his ears almost blown off, he shone with the speed of his arrival. Nawab's day, viewed from the air, would have appeared as aimless as that of a butterfly, to the senior manager's house in the morning, where he diligently paid his respects, then to one or another of the tube wells, kicking up dust on the unpaid field roads, into the town of Feroza, zooming beneath the rosewoods, a bullet of sound, moseying around town, sneaking away to one of his private interests, to cement a deal to distribute ripening early-season honeydews from his cousin's vegetable plot, or to count before hatching his half-share in a flock of chickens, then back to Nurpur Haruni and out again. The maps of these days, superimposed, would have made a tangle 
but every morning he emerged from the same place, just as the sun came up, and every evening he returned there, tired now, darkened, switching off the bike, rolling it over the wooden threshold of the door leading into the courtyard, the engine ticking as it cooled. Nawab leaned the bike on its kickstand each evening and waited for his girls to come, all of them around him, jumping on him. His face at this moment often had the same expression, an expression of childish, innocent joy, which contrasted strangely and even sadly with the heaviness of his face and its lines and stubble. He would raise his nose and sniff the air to see if he could guess what his wife had cooked for dinner, and then he went into her, finding her always in the same posture, making him tea, fanning the fire in the hearth. Hello, my love, my chicken piece, he said tenderly one evening, walking into the dark hut that served as a kitchen, the mud walls black with soot. What's in the pot for me? He opened the cauldron, which had been displaced by the kettle on the beaten earth floor, and began to search around in it with a wooden spoon. Out, out, she said, taking the spoon and dipping it into the curry, giving him a taste. He opened his mouth obediently like a boy receiving medicine. The wife, despite having borne 13 children, had a lithe, strong body, her vertebrae visible beneath her tight tunic. Her long, mannish face still glowed from beneath the skin, giving her a ripe ochre coloring. Even now that her hair was thin and graying, she wore it in a single long braid down to her waist like a young woman in the village. Although this style didn't suit her, Nawab saw in her still the girl he had married twenty years before. He stood in the door watching his daughters play hopscotch, and when his wife went past, he stuck out his butt so that she rubbed against it as she squeezed through. Nawab ate first, then the girls, and finally his wife. He sat out in the courtyard, burping and smoking a cigarette, looking up at the crescent moon just visible on the horizon. I wonder what the moon is made of, he thought, without exerting himself. He remembered listening to the radio when the Americans said they had walked on it. His thoughts wandered off into all sorts of tangents. The dwellers around him in the hamlet had also finished their dinners, and the smoke from cow dung fires hung over the darkening roofs, a harsh, spicy smell like rough tobacco. Nawab's house had numerous ingenious contrivances, running water in all three rooms, a duct that brought cool air into the rooms at night, and even a black-and-white television which his wife covered with a doily that she had embroidered with flowers. Nawab had constructed a gear mechanism so that the antenna on the roof could be turned from inside the house to improve reception. The children sat inside watching it with a sound blaring. His wife came out and sat primly at his feet on the sagging ropes of the woven bed, swinging her legs. I've got something in my pocket. Would you like to know what? He looked at her with a pouting sort of smile. I know this game, she said, reaching up and straightening his glasses on his face. Why are your glasses always crooked? I think one ear is higher than the other. If you find it, you can have it. Looking to see that the children were still absorbed in the television, she kneeled next to him and began patting his pockets. Lower, lower, he said. In the pocket of the greasy vest that he wore under his kurta, she found a wrapped-up newspaper holding chunks of raw brown sugar. I've got lots more, he said. Look at that, none of this junk you buy in the bazaar. The Dashtis gave me five kilos for repairing their sugarcane press. I'll sell it tomorrow. Make us some paratas, for all of us, pretty please? I put out the fire. So light it, or rather, you just sit here. I'll light it. You can never light it. I'll end up doing it anyway, she said, getting up. The smaller children, smelling the ghee cooking on the griddle, crowded around, watching the brown sugar melt, and finally even the older girls came in, though they stood haughtily to one side. Nawab, squatting and huffing on the fire, gestured to them. Come on, you princesses, none of your tricks. I know you want some. They began eating, 
pouring the brown crystallized syrup onto pieces of fried bread, and after a while, Nawab went to his motorcycle and pulled from the panniers another hunk of the sugar, challenging the girls to see who would eat most. One evening, a few weeks after his family's little festival of sugar, Nawab was sitting with the watchmen who kept guard over the grain stores at Nurpur Haruni. A banyan planted alongside the threshing floor only 30 years ago had grown a canopy of 40 or 50 feet, and all the men who worked in the stores tended it carefully, watering it with cans. The old watchman sat under this tree, and Nawab and the other younger men would sit with him at dusk, teasing him, trying to make his violent temper flare up, and joking around with one another. They would listen to the old man's stories of the time when only dirt tracks led through these riverine tracts, and the tribe stole cattle for sport and often killed each other while doing it to add piquancy. Although spring weather had come, the watchman still kept a fire burning in the tin pan to warm his feet and to give a center to the group that gathered there. The electricity had failed, as it often did, and the full moon climbing the sky lit the scene indirectly, reflecting off the whitewashed walls, throwing dim shadows around the machinery strewn about, plows and planters, drags, harrows. Here it is, old man, Nawab said to the watchman. I'll tie you up and lock you in the stores to make it look like a robbery, and then I'll top off my tank at the gas barrel. Nothing in it for me, the watchman said. Go on, I think I hear your wife calling you. I understand, sire, your wish to be alone. Nawab jumped up and shook the watchman's hand, making a bow, touching his hands deferentially to the old man's knee, as he would to the feudal K.K. Haruni, a running joke lost on the watchman these last ten years. Be careful, boy, the watchman said, standing up and leaning on his bamboo staff, clad in steel at the tip. Nawab leapt on the kickstarter of his motorcycle and in one smooth motion flicked on the lights and shot out of the threshing floor gates onto the quarter-mile driveway leading from the heart of the farm to the road. He felt cold and liked it, knowing that at home the room would be baking, the two-bar heater running day and night on pilfered electricity, the family luxuriating in excess warmth, even though the spring weather had come. Turning onto the dark main road, he sped up, outrunning the weak headlight. Obstacles appearing faster than he could react, feeling as if he were racing forward in the flame of a moving lantern. Night jars perching on the road as they hunted moths ricocheted into the dark, almost under his wheel. Nawab locked his arms, fighting the bike as he flew over potholes, enjoying the pace standing on the pegs. Among low-lying fields where the sugarcane had been heavily watered, mist rose and cool air enveloped him. He slowed, turning onto the smaller road running beside the canal, hearing the water rushing over the locks of the headworks. A man stepped from beside one of the locks, waving down at the ground, motioning Nawab to stop. Brother, the man said over the puttering engine, give me a ride into town. I've got business and I'm late. Strange business at this time of night, Nawab thought the taillight of the motorcycle casting a reddish glow around them on the ground. They were far from any dwellings. A mile away, the village of Dashtian crouched beside the road. Before that, there was nothing. He looked into the man's face. Where are you from? The man looked straight back at him, his face pinched and therefore overstated but unflinching. From Cashmore, please, you're the first person to come by for over an hour. I've walked all day. Cashmore, Noab thought from the poor country across the river. Every year those tribes came to pick the mangoes at Nurpur Haruni and other nearby farms, working for almost nothing, let go as soon as the harvest thinned. The men would give a feast, a thin feast, at the end of the season, a hundred or more going shares to buy a buffalo. 
Nawab had been several times and was treated as if he were honoring them, sitting with them and eating the salty rice flecked with bits of meat. He grinned at the man, gesturing with his chin to the seat behind him. All right, then, get on the back. Balancing against the weight behind him, which made driving along the rutted canal road difficult, Nawab pushed on under the rosewood trees. Half a mile from the headworks, the man shouted into Nawab's ear, Stop! What's wrong? Nawab couldn't hear over the rushing wind. The man jabbed something hard into his ribs. I've got a gun. I'll shoot you. Panicked, Nawab skidded to a stop and jumped to one side, pushing the motorcycle away from him so that it tipped over, knocking the robber to the ground. The carburetor float hung open, and the engine raced for a minute, the wheel jerking until the engine sputtered and died, extinguishing the headlight. What are you doing? Nawab babbled. I'll shoot you if you don't stand back, the robber said, rising up on one knee, the gun pointed at Nawab. They stood obscured in the sudden woolly dark next to the fallen motorcycle, which leaked raw-smelling gasoline into the dust underfoot. Water running through the reeds in the canal beside them made soft gulping sounds as it swirled along. His eyes adjusting to the dark, Nawab saw the man sucking at a cut on his palm, the gun held in his other hand. When the man went to pick up the bike, Nawab approached a step toward him. I told you, I'll shoot you. Nawab put his hands together in supplication. I beg you, I've got little girls, 13 children. I promise, 13. I tried to help you. I'll drive you to Feroza, and I won't tell anyone. Don't take the bike. It's my daily bread. I'm a man like you, poor as you. Shut up. Without thinking, a flash of cunning in his eyes, Nawab lunged for the gun, but missed. For a moment, the two men grappled until the robber broke free, stepped back, and fired. Nawab fell to the ground, holding his groin with both hands, entirely surprised, shocked, as if the man had slapped him for no reason. The man dragged the bike away, straddled it, and tried to start it, bobbing up and down, pitching his weight onto the lever, the engine whirring but not catching. It had flooded, and he held the throttle wide open, which made it worse. At the sound of the shot, the dogs in Dashtian had begun to bark, the sound fitful in the breeze. Lying on the ground, at first Nawab thought the man had killed him. The pale, moonlit sky, seen through the branches of the rosewood tree, tilted back and forth like a bowl of swaying water. He had fallen with one leg bent under him, and now he straightened it. His hand came away sticky when he touched the wound. Oh God, oh Mother, oh God, he moaned, not very loudly, in a sing-song voice. He looked at the man whose back was turned, vulnerable, kicking wildly at the starter not six feet away. Nawab couldn't let him take it away, not the bike, his toy, his freedom. He stood up again and stumbled forward, but his injured leg buckled and he fell, his forehead hitting the rear bumper of the motorcycle. Turning in the seat, holding a gun at arm's length, the robber fired five more times, one, two, three, four, five, with Nawab looking up into his face in disbelief, seeing the repeated flame in the revolver's mouth. The man had never used weapons, had fired this unlicensed revolver only one time to try it out when he bought it from a bootlegger. He couldn't bear to point at the torso or the head, but shot at the groin and the legs. The last two bullets missed wildly, throwing up dirt in the road. The robber rolled the motorcycle forward 20 feet, grunting, and again tried to start it. From Dashtian, a torch jogged quickly down the road. Throwing the bike to the ground, the man ran into a stand of reeds that bordered a field. Nawab lay in the road, not wanting to move. When the bullets first hit him, they didn't so much hurt as sting, but now the pain grew worse. The blood felt warm in his pants. It seemed very peaceful, 
In the distance, the dogs kept barking, and all around the cicadas called, so many of them that they blended into a single gentle sound. In a mango orchard across the canal, some crows began cawing, and he wondered why they were calling at night. Maybe a snake up in the tree, in the nest. Fresh fish from the spring floods of the Indus had just come onto the market, and he kept remembering that he had wanted to buy some for dinner, perhaps the next night. As the pain grew worse, he thought of that, the smell of frying fish. Two men from the village came running up, one much younger than the other, both of them bare-chested. The elder, pot-bellied, carried an ancient single-barreled shotgun, the butt mended crudely with wire. Oh, God, they've killed him. Who is it? The younger man kneeled down next to the body. It's Nawab, the electrician, from Nurpur Haruni. I'm not dead, Nawab said insistently, without raising his head. He knew these men, father and son. He had arranged the lighting at the son's wedding. The bastard's right there in the reeds. Stepping forward, aiming into the center of the clump, the older man fired, reloaded, and fired again. Nothing moved among the green leafy stalks, which were head high and surmounted by feathers of seed. He's gone, the young man said, sitting next to Nawab, holding his arm. The father walked carefully forward, holding the gun to his shoulder. Something moved, and he fired. The robber fell forward into the open ground. He called, Mother, help me, and got up on his knees, holding his hands to his waist. Walking up to him, the father hit him once in the middle of the back with the butt of the gun, and then threw down the gun and dragged him roughly by his collar onto the road. Raising the bloody shirt, he saw that the robber had taken half a dozen buckshot pellets in the stomach, black, angry holes seeping blood in the light of the torch. The robber kept spitting without any force. The son got up and started the motorcycle by pushing it down the road with the gears engaged until the engine came to life. Shouting that he would get some transport, he raced off, and Nawab winced, hearing the man, in his hurry, shifting without using the clutch. "'Do you want a cigarette, Uncle?' the old villager said to Nawab, offering the pack. Nawab rolled his head back and forth. "'Fuck, look at me.' In the silence, a forgotten thought kept bothering Nawab, something important. Then he remembered. "'Find the guy's revolver, Bole. You're going to need it for the cops.' "'I can't leave you,' he said, but after a minute he threw away his cigarette and got up. The old man was still searching in the reeds when the lights of a pickup materialized at the canal headworks and bounced wildly down the road. The driver, doubtful of the whole affair, stood by while the father and son lifted Nawab and the motorcycle thief into the back. They drove to Feroza to a private clinic there run by a mere pharmacist who nevertheless kept a huge clientele because of his abrupt and sure manner and his success at healing all the prevalent diseases with the same few medicines. The clinic smelled of disinfectant and of bodily fluids, a heavy, sweetish odor. Four beds stood in a room, dimly lit by a fluorescent tube. As the father and son carried him in, Nawab, alert to the point of strain, observed blood on some rumpled sheets, a rusty blot. The pharmacist who lived above the clinic had come down wearing a loincloth and undershirt. He seemed perfectly unflustered, if anything, slightly cross at having been disturbed. Put them on these two beds— "'Assalamu alaikum, Dr. Sahib,' said Nawab, who felt as if he were speaking to someone very far away. The pharmacist seemed an immensely grave and important man, and Nawab spoke to him formally. "'What happened, Nawab? He tried to snatch my motorbike, but I didn't let him.' The pharmacist pulled off Nawab's shawar, got a rag, and washed away the blood, then poked around quite roughly while Nawab held the sides of the bed and willed himself not to scream. "'You'll live,' he said. "'You're a lucky man. The bullets all went low.' Did it hit? The pharmacist dabbed with the rag. Not even that, thank God. 
The robber must have been hit in the lung, for he kept breathing up blood. You won't need to bother taking this one to the police, the pharmacist said. He's a dead man. Please, the robber begged, trying to raise himself. Have mercy. Save me. I'm a human being also. The pharmacist went into the office next door and wrote the names of drugs on a pad, sending the villager's son to a dispenser in the next street. Wake him and tell him it's Nawab Dean the electrician. Tell him I'll make sure he gets the money. Nawab looked over at the robber for the first time. There was blood on his pillow, and he kept snuffling as if he needed to blow his nose. His thin and very long neck hung crookedly on his shoulder, as if out of joint. He was older than Nawab had thought, not a boy, dark-skinned with sunken eyes and protruding yellow smoker's teeth, which showed whenever he twitched for breath. "'I did you wrong,' the robber said weakly. "'I know that. You don't know my life just as I don't know yours. Even I don't know what brought me here. Maybe you're a poor man, but I'm much poorer than you.' My mother is old and blind, in the slums outside Multan. Make them fix me. Ask them to do it and they'll do it. He began to cry, not wiping away the tears which drew lines on his dark face. Go to hell, Nawab said, turning away. Men like you are good at confessions. My children would have begged in the streets. The robber lay heaving, moving his fingers by his sides. The pharmacist seemed to have gone away somewhere. They just said that I'm dying. Forgive me for what I did. I was brought up with kicks and slaps and never enough to eat. I've never had anything of my own. No land, no house, no wife, no money, never, nothing. I slept for years on the railway station platform in Multan. My mother's blessing on you. Give me your blessing. Don't let me die unforgiven. He began snuffling and coughing even more and then started hiccuping. Now the disinfectant smelled strong and good to Nawab. The floor seemed to shine. The world around him expanded. Never, I won't forgive you. You had your life, I had mine. At every step of the road, I went the right way, and you the wrong. Look at you now, with bubbles of blood stuck in the corner of your lips. Do you think this isn't a judgment? My wife and children would have wept all their lives, and you would have sold my motorbike to pay for six unlucky hands of cards and a few bottles of poison homebrew. If you weren't lying here now, you would already be in one of the gambling camps along the river. The man said, please, 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 more softly each time and then he stared up at the ceiling. It's not true, he whispered. After a few minutes, he convulsed and died. The pharmacist, who had come back in by then and was cleaning Nawab's wounds, did nothing to help him. Yet Nawab's mind caught at this, at the man's words in his death like a bird hopping around some bright object, meaning to peck at it. And then he didn't. He thought of the motorcycle, saved, and the glory of saving it. Six shots, six coins thrown down, six chances, and not one of them had killed him, not Nawab Dean, electrician. That was Marissa Silver reading Nawab Dean, electrician, by Daniel Muinadin. The story appeared in The New Yorker in August of 2007 and was included in the 2008 anthology Best American Short Stories, edited by Salman Rushdie, as well as in Muinadin's story collection In Other Rooms, Other Wonders, which was published by W.W. W. Norton in 2009. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. 
Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. Marissa, as you were saying before, in some ways this is kind of a simple seeming story. It's sort of a slice of life on this farm in Pakistan. Why is it more than that? What makes it more than that? What makes it more than that is what's under this sort of subtext running underneath all the explicit action, which is really about class and power and morality. But it does it sneaks up on you. You don't you don't you aren't hit over the head that these are the themes of the story. It, it, it is incredibly woven into all the actions. And you see it um, so subtly in the way that um, Nawab has no power over his boss, but he has some power over these people who he can do favors for by increasing their you know, take. Um, he has power over his wife and his family, and he treats her both lovingly and not so lovingly. There, that moment where she says, you know, he's he's hiding the sugar, but he sort of makes her, in a sense, get down on her and knees. Grope and, him for and, it. <laughs> yeah, and in, in a sexual way, and, the sec- and, the, and his inference is sexual right in front of the children. It's this really charged moment that on the one hand you read as, you know, he's a delightful husband and he's brought home this treat for his family and he, he and his wife have a lovely, playful relationship, but there's something utterly uncomfortable about it. And then he eats first and then his children, which I'm sure has a cultural appropriateness, but it's also um, a, a sense of power. I mean, the, the, the way in which that happens has to do with power and family power. And then this utterly surprising um, event happens in the story where he's mugged by the guy and then suddenly there's this complexified power situation going on because the man has a gun, obviously. So he is in charge, literally, of whether um, Nawab lives or dies. And then that tense conversation between them as they both sort of, you know, that the man sort of demands the bike because he's poor and Nawab, you know, refuses to give it up because that bike means everything to him and it is his power. That bike represents his power. And then the, this wonderful another change where they are in the hospital and suddenly there are these two guys in bed side by side. They are in some ways quite equal. And yet uh, Nawab refuses to let go of his sense of authority over this guy. He won't forgive him. And even when the man says that final chilling line, it's not true, which is a really interesting line. And we could unpack that for mm-hmm. um, later. 
Um, Nawab Dean knows that he should understand more in that line. He knows that that line will expose him, will tell, will, will expose this kind of um, holding on to power, this this way in which he's organized his life. And then he turns his back on it. He refuses to see yeah. it. And so it's this wonderful, um, in every situation in the story, power is at issue. Even in that scene where he's um, going to visit the uh, the watchman mm-hmm. and the watch. And that's a very thrown away scene. There's not much that goes on there. It's not important, but he teases the man in a way. And, and that is a, that's power too. So every single situation, every single encounter is a different shift and a different way of looking at the dynamics of power in this community and what the morality of that is. Mm-hmm. And there are so many different levels too, because it's true that Noab is poor and it's true that the thief is poor, but they're not the same poor. Right. Um, and and exactly. there, there are very subtle gradations that that Muinadin gets at. Um, the other thing that I think is so wonderful is that um, the, 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 the echo, Muinadin sets up these echoes where we have the scene where Nawab asks um, Haruni for the bike. And he is kind of inventing a, s- a story, right? He says, I'm an old man. I can't bike anymore. This probably isn't true. He's just figuring this is the moment where he can sort of accrete some some mm-hmm. power and some uh, a motorbike. And so he's done this tremendous performance where he's um, wheedled this bike out of his boss. Well, the conversation that the robber has with him, we might believe it, that mm-hmm. he is poor and comes from nothing and has slept on a railway, or it might be his way of, you know, manipulating a situation. We don't really know. And so th- those echoes are really interesting to me, too. We don't mm-hmm. quite know who to believe. I mean, what's also sort of wonderful about this story is we we love Nawab. You know, mm-hmm. he's so canny and cunning and he's kind of sticking it to the man and he's, you know, managing this this life and he has these 13 daughters who he adores and he, Muinuddin has sort of um, compelled us to like a character who's really morally challenged. And then when we come up against a robber who we immediately say, oh, well, that's the bad guy, of course. But then there they are lying side by side on the bed who is really the worse? Who has really got the moral high upper hand? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because Nawab has based his life on a form of stealing, but it's a different stealing. Right. It's a much more indirect stealing. Um, and it's it's sort of more like grifting or something. Yeah, but it's illegal. It's a little bit of cheating. Yeah, it's cheating. And, 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 it, and the other guy is... is uh, clearly, you know, has a gun, it's violent. So we assume, well, that's worse. Yeah. Though at the same time, he can't bring himself to shoot at the head or the torso. He's he's squeamish even when being violent. Exactly. So there's, there's some humanity on both sides. But I think one of the interesting things is the way the story is split more or less in half, that you have this first half that's sort of a portrait of this man, um, during which we do come to really feel affection for him. And then the second half is quite different. Does the way that he responds to the robber kind of change your feeling for him? I, I think what it does for me as a reader is it, it calls into question my affinity toward him. On the one hand, I feel, well, he's been robbed. He's had a gun pointed at him. Um, he's naturally defensive. But then there's wonderful moments where we're not allowed to feel that. For instance, when the guy's driving, the younger farmer is driving away on the bike and Nawab is concerned that the guy isn't um, switching gears correctly. You know, there's that pettiness that's there. 
And so um, I think he's that very protective of the bike. Very, he doesn't want it damaged. <laughs> he doesn't. And it's and, you know, here he is lying in, you know, pool of blood for all he knows he could be dying. And, and that bike, which represents everything to him about his identity and his power in this world, um, that's what he's concerned about. And so then we begin to shift. I mean, I think then those are the sorts of very subtle ways in which. Muinuddin begins to tell us this is not such a charming man. This is not a this is not someone who's who should draw our empathy. We need to begin to look at him more critically. Yeah. I mean it's interesting that the motorcycle is not just a it's not just his own sense of power. It's it's an external sign of power. As soon as he gets it, people start calling him uncle. Right. They start asking his opinion on world affairs, which he knows nothing about. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm sure he offers an opinion. Um, <laughs> what why is it is it simply just the material aspect you own an object that costs money or is there something else to that sort of shift in his status? Well, I think there's something interesting in the story about mechanization. And you know, so much of the story is about him fixing these broken uh, machines. And so you get a portrait of a world that is, you know, working with broken machinery and everything mm-hmm. sort of, you know, sort of, you know, held together with spit and polish. And I think that the idea of this machine that's new, the guy gets a new Honda and it's um, it works and it represents to me for him this kind of he's risen a level above the the, the life that where everyone else is sort of putting things together with wire and, you know, hope and a prayer. And mango sap. Um, yeah, and mango sap, exactly. <laughs> um, and, and I also think that there's, um, you know, s- that wonderful scene where he's driving so fast along the road. I mean, that is the future, right? That is the mechanical future. That is industrialization. And I think that there's some comment also about there's a future of Pakistan that is not available to most of Pakistanis. But now, now Nawab has this little piece of it. And, and it, that, makes, it makes him a target. Yeah, exactly. And then... He suddenly, the thing he didn't have for decades, he can't stand to lose. Right, and it becomes his downfall. Yeah. It also becomes his access to his wife. Yeah, that's which true. Which is interesting. Yeah. Um, that she won't live with him. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and the, yeah, and the other thing is just to think about movement. I mean, you know, when he has a bicycle, he can't get very far. Yeah. When he has his motorcycle, suddenly his word, world broadens out. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's It's... Interesting to think of it as a kind of morality tale. You know, you were bringing up the the issue of morality in that final scene. Do you think that there is a moral to it? Are we supposed to think that Nawab has done the right thing at the end because this guy is just full of it? (laughs) And and, and it's true. Nawab's children would have been begging in the street if he'd been killed. Um, Or are we supposed to think that he's sort of heartless at that moment? Well, I mean, one of the reason I think this story is so fantastic is that we don't know the answer. And I think that's we don't know whether what is the right moral stance at that point. Do you become more human in a moment like that and forgive the person who was brought to such a crisis in his life that he did this? Um, is, is it right to not forgive? Um, is it right to see that you're to see that you're somehow above this person? You know, which is what he does. I mean, they're lying mm-hmm. there together in the exact same bed in the exact same crappy hospital, and yet he sort of refuses to agree that he's at one with this man in the same way that he refuses to really contemplate what that line, it's not true, means. So I think what's powerful about I think this story wouldn't be powerful if we knew the answer. <laughs> I think the thing that's p- powerful about the story is it makes us question 
you know, how do how do we function in terms of power in our own lives and what kinds of um, ways do we create hierarchies so that we can feel that we somehow will survive a little bit better than the next guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I think that's what's powerful to me about this work is that it doesn't um, answer that question. It just makes you question it. Yeah. I mean, and Noab may think that he has the answer to that. I mean, he does tell him at every step of the way, I went the right road and you went the wrong road. He knows nothing about this man except that he's held him up, which obviously was the wrong road. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, and then he says, I went the right road. But, of course, he's been scamming his yeah. entire life. So his yeah. version of right road, it, it's all these gradations of m- morality. But in his mind, he's been scamming to protect his children and help his neighbors yeah. and all the rest. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. but, you know, it's all relative, right? It is. I mean, to me, you know, any any story that for me succeeds is one that doesn't sort of close down at the end with everything being wrapped up in a bow and an answer given, but one that sort of opens and says, here are really complex things that this story is telling you to start thinking about. Yeah. Um, and you, I mean, that wonderful aha moment when you walk away from a piece of fiction is that feeling of like, oh, now something, now the world is opened up to me more and I have to think about it harder. And you have to put yourself in that bed. Right. In that bed in the clinic with the pharmacist going off. (laughs) Right. And the blood on the sheets and the, yeah. yeah. And, and think, would I say, I forgive you? Yeah. Because before that, it's, it's fairly easy for him to say no when the man is saying, tell them to help me too. Right. Um, But the forgiveness issue is, it's not so hard. No, it's not hard, especially when a man is dying. Yeah. So it makes, it makes actually Nawab, who we initially loved and someone I'm, personally find really petty and yeah um and that you know brilliant last line that the robber utters where he says is it true and what does that mean it isn't true yeah it it isn't true and and is it you know maybe it means that he's saying i i'm not who you think i am i'm not as or but there's that moment where nawab almost decides to listen to that line and to try to contemplate how it might affect him and then he turns his back on it so the question is how would that line it isn't true affect him if he were able to take it in? Right. What would it mean to him? And I think that's the what you leave the story wondering and thinking about. And I don't think it's answered for us. But I think his that's... mind catches on that line. And then he, he says, no, I'm going to think about the motorcycle. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So he's kind of unwilling to contemplate the existential. Yeah. It's interesting to know, in fact, that a large portion of the story is true, that there is, you know, Marina uh, didn't live his father had a farm in South Punjab, and he went there as a child a lot, and and then in his twenties went back to manage it. And um, he he actually told me quite a lot about the real Nawab, who who was shot mm-hmm. in a, in an attempted robbery from his motorcycle, and and used to like to show his scars and <laughs> and say, you know, he'd survived this; nothing could kill him. He was invincible, and he was someone who had been very kind to Muinuddin as a little boy and given him toys and played with him. And so he had this impression of a benevolent kind of figure. And then when he went back and realized that that even this man was kind of robbing his father blind and stealing from the farm, there was a whole reassessment. So I think I think in some ways the author has gone through this kind of rethinking in mm-hmm. the process of writing the story. 
Well, maybe, and, and when you talked about the two halves of the story, that's exactly what's yeah. represented, that one of yeah. them is the sort of the young boy's adulation. Because even the language in that first half, it, it's very heroic. Mm-hmm. You know, it talks about um, Nawab's efforts to to do the, his, his scamming work as kind of, you know, almost like chivalric. Mm-hmm. And then the language changes quite ad- abruptly, and he's not any, that, that kind of language is not used. Yeah, in the second about half. him. So yeah. uh, that's really interesting. It's interesting. I mean, he he sent me an email about the real Nawab, who he says is a kind of trickster. He says, the man was born to be a character in a story if only someone would come along to write it. He had the Pakistani genius for effective but crude improvisation that I also associate with the Russians, rough in his work and also in his life, unprincipled but with good humor about it, abashed rather than embarrassed. And, you know, that he was constantly padding the bills and and stealing from the farm in small ways. There was He had a great story, actually. He put this in um, Best American Short Stories about uh, how Marunadin had this dream to start fish farming on this farm and had the ponds made and poured thousands and thousands of little hatchlings into these ponds. And then when he went to harvest them, they came up with 14 fish. <laughs> um, and, and it turned out that every night, no, Abdin had been going there and sort of opening the sluice gates, letting some fish swim up into the stream, catching them and taking them to the market to sell. It's <laughs> you got to love that. <laughs> so, you know, it fits right in with how we feel about him in this story. He's right. a thief and he's dishonest, but you sort of admire it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think Mouinadin's trick has been to make us admire someone. Oh, completely. We love him. I mean, he's like this awful Robin Hood. But I don't admire him at the end. And I think yeah. that maybe, you know, Muinuddin's own... Um, that that amb- part is his invention. Yeah. There's no talk about forgiveness in the real. Right. But I And I think that, you know, maybe that's where his sort of reassessment of the character was given imaginative space. Mm-hmm. Because what do you do with a, a man who you love, but you find out has been robbing your father? Right. And, you're and how do you deal with the, you know, I mean, if your father is the landowner, then there's that other, you know, you're the, you're the powerful person, you know, this man is not. Um, you know, you were you were talking about um, the the Russians. And I mean, when you read Muinuddin, I definitely was put in mind of the Russians. Mm-hmm. And so I went back this weekend just to read um, Janet Malcolm on Chekhov and her mm-hmm. wonderful book, Reading Chekhov. And, and just in terms of This quote from her book really made a lot of sense to me in terms of this story. She says, his work has, and this is Chekhov, a bark of the prosaic in which Chekhov consistently encases a story's vital poetic core. And I Mm -hmm. thought that was really accurate for Muinuddin's work as well, is that there's something both um, simplistic and direct that's a nice outer shell for something that is quite poetic Mm -hmm. and... um, gets to really essential questions about yeah. humanity. And it gets to them through this kind of prosaic story of a day in the life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, one of the other things that comes through for me is this is this portrait of, of rural Pakistan, of this environment as a place in which time passes and nothing changes. You know, maybe there are little changes in mechanization and, and so mm-hmm. on, but you have those that reference to these trees and and people actually know that they were ordered to be planted by a prince 150 years ago and then now they're here giving beautiful shade but there there are these stories that are sort of passed on and Mm -hmm. the watchman tells his stories so you have a sense of kind of these eternal um, farm workers 
sitting around passing along the wisdom of, of the ages, which yeah. I find really beautiful. And there's also in this story just a, a lot of attention paid to nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he notices it a lot. Nawab notices, you know, the trees and the sky and the, the water and the cicadas and the, you know, so it, there's this wonderful sense of the world, as you say, that it, yeah. and that it, and, it, and there's beauty to it. And it does kind of rub up against the broken machinery and um, the kind of decrepitness of, of the farm workers' lives. And then that motorcycle mm-hmm. is like a glinting thing in the middle of it all that, yeah. that sort of um, does represent something beyond this, you know, kind of catch-as-catch-can life of these people. Kind of an eruption of the yeah. city in this, in this country life. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I think there's great affection for the country. And there's also a sense that the, the people are find it beautiful. Yeah. That yeah. that, that, that they appreciate find. their yeah. surroundings. They yeah. appreciate these these banyan trees they can sit under and Exactly. And they tend to them. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. I mean one of the things that, that Muinadin does here and in other stories is write about people, you know, as as we've said, he's the landowner in a sense. He's writing about people of, at lower levels of society and not ever to me seeming condescending or patronizing. It's very difficult to do that. How do you think he, he pulls that off? Well, I think he pulls it off because he gives them fully fledged particularity. I mean, there's nothing generalized about any of his characters. They don't represent anything but themselves. And so you don't feel that they are being described from a kind of distant view of someone who is not of them. You feel like the writer has so deeply immersed himself in the specificity of a character that the portrait is coming through that character, not from above. So much attention is paid to this issue now. You know, Nawab is given full range of his complexity, of his uh, love, of his venality of his morality of his immorality he's you know he is not meant to symbolize anything but himself yeah or that that eternal trickster yes exactly <laughs> but at the same time he's nawab the eternal, eternal yeah. trickster he's not yeah. just any eternal you know i think that there are writers who who would have made him into more of a type but i don't think you he's a type i think he's this man no he's quite specific yeah and i think that's <laughs> why there doesn't seem to be a condescension in terms of an, of a writerly condescension or a kind of a sense of remove there's and there's a great understanding of the um i mean even haruni is a you know fatuous man i mean yeah. you know it's not as though he's in you know praising that that man there's sort of everybody is 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 venal in their own little way yeah. on this you know power structure that exists yeah he hands out the motorcycle because he's warm by his rosewood fire. And exactly, exactly. <laughs> and because he doesn't want the guy to leave because the guy can fix his fan when it's he broken. And, you know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Mwinadin also mentioned when I, when I was emailing with him that he's just about finished with a novel and it's set entirely in the U.S. Oh, interesting. Um, you know, and he is half, his father was Pakistani, his mother was uh, Norwegian-American and he grew up in in a few different places, but partly between this farm in Pakistan and his mother's rural setting in um, in Wisconsin, mm-hmm. and so this interesting. novel is set partly in the in the rural part of Wisconsin where his mother grew up. So, well, um, we who love these stories 
are happy to hear this. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's so associated in what we've read in in the story collection with Pakistan. Mm-hmm. It's going to be strange to yeah. to resituate that, and also just to sort of get the sense of the different rural lives. That'll yeah. be really fascinating. Yeah. And maybe there's just commonality between farms, you know? Yeah. I mean, my guess is he's such an adept, uh, you know, writer about human lives that we will feel as entrenched in that world as in the world that, you know, in Pakistan, I can't imagine. I'm very excited to hear that. <laughs> A lot of people I know have been waiting for his next. Yeah. Well, he'll be happy to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Marissa. Thank you so much. Daniel Moinuddin is the author of the story collection In Other Rooms, Other Wonders, which has been translated into 16 languages. The book won the Story Prize and the Commonwealth Writers' Prize and was a finalist for the National Book Award and the Pulitzer Prize. His forthcoming novel is tentatively titled This is Where the Serpent Lives. Marissa Silver is the author of two story collections, Babe in Paradise and Alone with You, and four novels, including The God of War and Little Nothing. She's been publishing fiction in The New Yorker since 2000. You can download more than 140 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, including one in which Marissa Silver reads and discusses a story by Peter Taylor, or subscribe to the podcast for free in the Apple Podcast section of the iTunes Store. On the Writer's Voice Podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts on iTunes. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.